Hey everybody, Magnus here. I just want to offer a little bit of clarification about some things up front. Basically, all, or almost all, of the Batman shows that you're going to be hearing in this in this mega series, this Superman Batman mega series that I'm working my way through right now, most of those episodes are old, old, old. I recorded them a long time ago. Just to tell you how long ago we're talking about, most of most of the Batman episodes in this mega series are they were recorded back in November of 2014. 2014, not 2015. So because of that, I originally envisioned a much different release schedule. Basically, Actually, you know what? I'll just I'll just spare all of you that because it's really not that interesting. But suffice it to say, I originally had a very different plan for releasing those episodes, and then fate intervened. So the reason I mention this is because I make comments in this episode about last week and what I talked about last week, and that is obviously not accurate. And then at the end of the episode, I actually say that next week's show is going to be yet something else that it's not going to be. I ask you to disregard all of that. Last week, in terms of actual release schedules and the things that actually did come out, last week I was joined by John M. Wilson, and he and I talked about Superman number 248 and number 258, but... In this episode, I make it sound like last week I talked about Detective Comics number 627 because that was the original plan. And next week, what I'm going to be talking about is Superman Earth 1 Volume 3, wherein I'll be once again joined by John M. Wilson to talk about that. But in this episode, I also make reference to talking about something else next week. So just for accuracy's sake, last week I talked about Superman number 248 and 258 with John M. Wilson. And next week, I'm going to be talking about Superman Earth 1 Volume 3 with John M. Wilson. So, hopefully that all makes sense. Now, enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own angled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Batman, a mysterious and adventurous figure fighting for righteousness and apprehending the wrongdoer, 
in his lone battle against the evil forces of society. His identity remains unknown. Hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host Magnus and I love talking about comics, movies, and TV shows so much that I decided to start a podcast wherein I could talk about comics, movies, and TV shows even more. Now, in the course of running this show, one subject I've not talked a whole lot about is the Golden Age Batman. And I mean the really Golden Age Batman, brother. We're talking about the two-fisted, bulletproof, jacket-wearing, gun-toting, urban commando, Golden Age Batman. Now, true, I did talk a little bit about him last week when I took a fond look back at Detective Comics number 627, which included a reprint of The Case of the Chemical Syndicate from Detective Comics number 27. But that's the first time I ever discussed this era of the character's history. At least on this podcast. And man, talk about a maligned era for Batman. This is the era that a lot of fans would love to be able to forget about. Or one of them, anyway. The other one's most of the 1960s, which I also talked a little bit about last week. But anyway, so, this. The butt crack of the golden age of comics isn't really all that highly regarded among a lot of fans. Maybe even most fans. But that's always been a little weird for me because, first of all, This era of Batman is awesome. And second of all, whether anybody likes it or not, this is fundamentally what Denny O'Neill wanted to restore Batman to when he took control of the character in the late 60s and early 70s. So yeah, this era of Batman, the approximately one year of publication history before Robin was created, is chock full of all kinds of awesome. So the way I look at it, why not talk about that? Anything to get people off Denny O'Neill or Scott Snyder's balls is pretty much fine by me. Which is a good lead-in to Detective Comics number 28. Entitled, Frenchie Baker's Jewel Gang. Executive editor is Vincent Sullivan. Cover artist is, it doesn't have Batman on the cover, so who gives a care? Writer is Bill Finger. Penciler's Bob Kane. Inker's Bob Kane. Letterer's Bob Kane. And editor is Vincent Sullivan. There's been a series of daring jewel robberies in Gotham City which leave the police completely baffled. Bruce Wayne impersonates Commissioner Gordon to get information from a stool pigeon by the name of Gimpy. Desperate to save his own ass, Gimpy reveals that the culprits are a gang run by Frenchie Blake. As a cherry on top, Gimpy even adds that their next target is going to be the wealthy Vandersmiths. That night, two jewel thieves named Gloves and Ricky leave the Vandersmith's apartment loaded down with their loot. Suddenly, the Batman glides down and attacks the two thieves and the fight's on. The Batman dispenses with gloves by using a flying kick. Ricky charges the Batman with a knife rather than a gun because he doesn't want to attract attention from the police. The Batman kicks Ricky off the roof where he plummets to his death on the streets below. 
Gloves desperately draws a gun, but it's too little too late. The Batman knocks him out with one punch and picks up the satchel full of jewels and waits for the police to arrive. The cops don't disappoint either. Two police officers arrive after investigating Ricky's dead body and get there just in time to see the Batman drop the bag full of jewels and assume he's the leader of the gang. The police open fire on the Batman as he dives off the roof. He does a somersault in midair and lands on a rooftop below. Then he takes out a silk rope from his belt, lassos a nearby flagpole, and the police are amazed to watch the Batman easily swing on to a nearby rooftop and make his escape. The next day, newspaper headlines everywhere announce that the Batman is head of the gang of jewel thieves. Frenchy Blake sees this as a good thing because the police are going to be watching for the Batman rather than him and his gang from now on. Blake begins planning his next move. It's revealed that the Batman is listening, listening outside and this is all part of his plan. He wanted the police to think he was a criminal so that French, uh, Frenchy Blake would act like he wasn't being watched. Frenchy sends Slick and two other henchmen to rob the Norton household next. The Batman swings through a huge open window and knocks one of the thieves out with a kick. The second thug tackles Batman from behind, but the Batman throws him off, knocks him out, and then calls Commissioner Gordon to leave a tip, and then quickly departs the scene using his handy bat rope once again. The Batman arrives at Frenchie Blake's apartment, where Frenchie's playing solitaire. Frenchie mistakenly believes that the Batman is slick and lets him inside. The Batman then gives Frenchie a right jab, then ties him up with the rope and hangs him outside the window. The Batman demands a written confession, otherwise he'll cut the rope and let Frenchie fall to his death. Frenchie's panicked out of his mind, and so he agrees to sign the confession. But after signing it, Frenchie attacks the Batman in a last-ditch effort to save himself, but the Batman beats the crap out of him until he begs for mercy. Then the Batman trusses Frenchie up, stows him in his car, and drops him in front of the police headquarters. Frenchie gets picked up by Officer Kelly, who finds the stolen jewels and a note on Frenchie's shirt. Commissioner Gordon reads the note from the Batman, which explains that this was a favor to the police department. The end. So, what did I think? Honestly, I love this era of Batman. This was a time in Batman's publishing history before he had shitloads of gadgets and the Batmobile and the Batcave or a a ton of other things. This Batman is a guy who relies on his wits, his fists, and his intelligence. Plus, he's not really battling costumed supervillains just yet. He mostly takes on mobsters and street criminals. And what's interesting here is how the Batman doesn't think he needs to protect his reputation. Here... He's totally willing to let the police believe that he's part of the, the uh, Jewel Thief gang. Just so, Frenchie and his minions won't be on their guard later on in the story. Now, there's really not a whole lot of Bruce Wayne going on in this story. He's basically around long enough to impersonate Commissioner Gordon on page one. And then that's about it. And that leads into something else. It seems that, at least at first... Bill Finger and Bob Kane intended Bruce Wayne to be a tool the Batman uses to go places the Batman can't, or do things the Batman can't. And I've always loved that angle of Batman. Now, to be fair, it wouldn't stick around forever, probably because Finger and Kane realized uh, how much that approach limits story potential. 
and really limits it too much. But right now, it's really effective stuff. Another agenda of this story seems to be demonstrating what an amazing athlete the Batman is. First, he fights two opponents at the same time. Next, he has that daring escape from the police where he somersaults, somersaults off of all those buildings and shit. Then he hangs off his rope and listens to a conversation that, I don't know, but had to last several minutes, which, that's some amazing fucking endurance when you think about it. In fact, just about every page on this story shows the Batman doing some kind of amazing physical stunt or another. This, again, seemed to be a major agenda for Kane and Finger. They wanted to show that even though the Batman doesn't have superpowers or anything, he can still do some incredible physical feats, dangerous stunts, and other shit. The Batman's incredibly strong, flexible. He's got amazing stamina that probably puts him on about the same level as, a, as Olympic athletes. And he's clever enough to play the long game against Frenchie's gang of jewel thieves. Now, I didn't touch on a, a whole lot last time, but this is clearly a Batman who really doesn't put too much of a premium on human life. And that was just part of the times in which Batman lived. Fictional characters and heroic figures from this time really weren't expected necessarily to be saints. Instead, they were supposed to punish bad guys. Permanently, if need be. And the Batman fits right into that mold. That works on a lot of levels for me. First, as I say, it's authentic to the time. Crime in the 1930s was a pretty fucking brutal thing. The masses wanted criminals to be treated brutally in return. But the other thing is, with the benefit of hindsight, we know Batman's origin story. We know why he does the things that he does. And very honestly, I've never, ever bought into Batman's no-kill policy. I mean, that makes sense for Superman. For one thing, nobody is any kind of match for Superman. He's got to show restraint with his powers. He's got to prove that he can be trusted. The Batman doesn't really have that limitation. Plus, I think the murder of his parents would have taught Bruce exactly just how cheap, fragile, and temporary human life really is. I don't think the Batman would have a no-kill policy precisely because of what happened with his parents. I think he'd be ready, willing, and able to take human life and sleep like a baby later that night. And not only... I, and, and I not only think the Batman would, I'd go so far as to say he should. Now look, death isn't an appropriate punishment for everything. I think the Batman would pick and choose which enemies deserve his full wrath, but at the same time, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think he'd get his hands dirty with some random purse snatcher or, or, or shit like that, but people who are real threats to life... Yeah, I think the Batman would wipe him out without shedding a tear. Of course, if that's Batman's policy, it pretty much makes his classic villains like the Joker or Two-Face an endangered species, and that's obviously no bueno. So you have to invent bullshit reasons why Batman doesn't kill those guys. 
And thus begins the slippery slope to the Batman having some kind of fucking retarded anti-killing policy. And like I say, I think that's abjectly foreign to somebody who's been through the things that Batman's been through in life. But whatever. Small potatoes. For right now, this is a Batman who doesn't fuck around with criminals. You break the law, it's your ass. The Batman's coming for you. So anyway, it's a really fun, really pulpy crime story. And it's strange to think how, f- how few out-and-out crime stories the Batman's included in when you really start thinking about it. But here, there's no pretense about it. The Batman's up to his eyeballs in jewel thieves, murky street shadows, full moons, sensationalist newspaper headlines, and all that. And I love it. Then you get into the art. And again, I will assume that Bob Kane drew this issue. And supposing I'm right, it's a pretty major improvement over Detective Comics number 27. Don't get me wrong. I went on the record saying last time that I enjoyed the art in Detective Comics number 27, but at the same time, you really can't argue that the art in 27 isn't just a little bit primitive. The art here in 28, it's a pretty noticeable improvement. It seemed like Bob Kane was experimenting with the model for Batman. How should the ears on the Batman's cowl be drawn? How tall should the Batman be? Stuff like that, you know? Another thing I mentioned is, is that Kane and Finger originally wanted the Batman's outfit to be entirely black. But let's face it, print technology back in the 1930s wouldn't have been able to do that very well. The Batman would have looked like a black blob on the page. So instead, they used black as much as possible and dark colors that I think readers were meant to infer were also black. Meaning that the fact that Batman wore purple gloves in the case of the Chemical Syndicate, we're not supposed to take that literally, people. Now, that was all speculation on my part last time. And I'm going to do some more speculating here. I'm guessing that Kane and Finger didn't really like the print job in 27 because there's a lot more shading and lines on the Batman's bodysuit in this story. It's as though Kane's experimenting with the art as much as possible to show us that he's making the suit as black as he possibly can without literally losing sight of, of the Batman in the process. And if you ask me... The art here in 28 just bolsters my argument. And speaking of art and visuals and stuff, here's the first time we get a real taste of Bob Kane's fixation with putting Batman near a full moon. We'll be seeing more of this in the future, but for my money, it starts here. So, anyway, I think we can move on to Detective Comics number 29, the title of which is The Batman Meets Dr. Death. Executive editor is Vincent Sullivan, cover artist is Bob Kane, writer is Gardner Fox, penciler is Bob Kane, inker is Bob Kane, letterer is Bob Kane, editor is Vincent Sullivan. In his study, Dr. Death announces to his servant Jabba that he's completed his laboratory experiments. His method of death by pollen extract will be used to hold the world's wealthy hostage until they pay tribute to him. Dr. Death knows that his crime is eventually going to attract attention from the Batman, though, and so he decides to kill the Batman preemptively. 
Nobody knows the Batman's secret identity, so they place a personal ad in the newspaper. Bruce Wayne reads this ad, which tells him to pick up a letter from the post office under the name John Jones. The letter announces the time and location of a murder that Dr. Death plans to commit later that night. Returning home, Bruce Wayne gathers the equipment that he needs in order to become the Batman. He puts gas pellets of choking gas into his, into his belt compartment. He also carries suction gloves and knee pads to help him climb the building. The Batman then drives to the crime scene in his automobile and scales the side of the building with his rope and suction cups. When he, when he enters through the window, two thugs ambush him with guns. They underestimate his agility though and he knocks a statue over on top of them. Then, while they're on the ground, he punches them a whole bunch of times in the face. They refuse to give up their employer though and so the Batman threatens to murder them if they don't talk. At that moment, Jabba enters with a gun and shoots the Batman in the shoulder. Despite this wound, the Batman's able to escape by throwing a pellet of choking gas and then leaping out the window. Later, Bruce Wayne places an ad in the newspaper announcing that the Batman accepts Dr. Death's challenge. He visits the family doctor who's surprised to see him with a bullet wound. Bruce laughs off the doctor's questions and doesn't explain how he received his injury. Later, Dr. Death is furious that his underlings have failed him. He sends Jabba to kill a man named John P. Van Smith, who refuses to pay tribute. Bruce Wayne coincidentally sees Jabba while driving down the street and then decides to follow him. Jabba blows poison at Smith and then escapes, but Bruce Wayne manages to save the man's life. Bruce then follows Jabba back to Dr. Death's hideout and later returns as the Batman. The Batman breaks through Dr. Death's window with a glass cutter. He instantly takes down Jabba by choking him with his lasso. Dr. Death escapes through a trap door in the ground, but the Batman follows him through this trap door. Dr. Death runs back upstairs and realizes that his only option is to run around in circles. Returning to his laboratory, Dr. Death grabs his chemicals to throw at the Batman. The Batman then picks up a fire extinguisher and hurls it at Dr. Death, which makes his chemicals fall on the ground. They ignite into a terrible blaze and the entire laboratory goes up in flames. Dr. Death stands in front of the fire and laughs at the Batman for being such a fool. The Batman remarks that Dr. Death is the poor fool because he's gone completely mad. Dr. Death dies in the fire. Does he really though? Well, here's a hint. No. But for now, the end. So, what did I think? I gotta say, this is an interesting story in a lot of ways. For one thing, this is the first time that a criminal's actively challenged the Batman. Up to this point, the Batman's butted in on situations and activities that didn't necessarily concern him directly. He rights wrongs, punishes the wicked, and then disappears into the night. But this story is the first time someone's come, come gunning for Batman. There's good reason to think that Dr. Death would have gotten away with everything that he was that, that he had in mind if he just kept his uh, head down, gone about his business, and not called the Batman out. But he didn't. And because he didn't, it was inevitable for the, for the Batman to eventually take him down. Another interesting angle to this story, though, is that this is also the first time the Batman's acted out of selfish reasons. 
Dr. Death attempted to murder John P. Van Smith. But that's not the reason Batman goes after Dr. Death. Hell, goings-on with Van Smith only take up just a few panels, and they're really only there to give Batman a lead on Dr. Death's hideout. The entire rest of the story is a grudge match between Dr. Death and the Batman. The Batman wants vengeance against Dr. Death for laying that trap for him earlier in the story. The Batman's got a score to settle here. The rights and the wrongs aren't even a factor in this story. It's all about the Batman wanting a piece of Dr. Death for all the trouble that he'd caused him personally. Now, I mention all of that to say this. That's not the behavior of an altruistic hero on a crusade for the betterment of mankind. These, my friends, these are the actions of a driven loner who's motivated by his own personal desires rather than the greater good. There's nothing utopian or idealistic about the Batman's actions or psychology in this story. And to me, that is what Batman's all about, especially at this juncture in the character's history. The Batman's not a high-minded idealist, in my estimation. Never has been, never will be. He's motivated to fight a war against crime because he views it as unchecked chaos. He sees his mandate as imposing order. But over and above all of that, the Batman does what he does because he needs to do it. On some psychological level, he needs to wage war against criminals personally because he personally has been wronged by them. Anyway, there's probably a lot more I could dig through with all of that, but my point is that this is the very first time we see Batman take a personal interest in something as opposed to the detached objectivity that was implied in Detective Comics number 27 and number 28. The Batman's war on crime, being a personal vendetta rather than a selfless crusade, for me, it's always been implicit to his character, but this is the first time in the Batman's entire publishing history where I think that became an element of his stories. This is the moment where it became implicit. And on some level, I got to wonder if this is the first time that we've seen the, uh, a different writer study the character and come to a completely different conclusion than the guy before him came to. Gardner Fox wrote this story rather than Bill Finger. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I think there's a completely valid argument that Fox sees the Batman in a very different light than Bill Finger did. One thing Fox and Finger seem to have agreed on, though, is that Batman doesn't mince words with criminals. If Dr. Death's thugs hadn't cooperated with the Batman, there is good reason to think he really would have blown them all to hell. What makes this different in Fox's story, though, is the context. It's one thing for the Batman to fight and kill to protect innocent people from being framed for murder or to take down a gang of jewel thieves who are robbing people blind, or anything like that. It's quite another, though, at least in my opinion, for the Batman to be so nonchalant about taking human life because he feels he's been personally attacked or insulted. Again, it's not the fact that Batman's willing to kill people in this story. It's why he's willing to kill them that makes the difference here. 
the other aspects of the story are, 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 are good as well. Some good writing going on here. It's interesting to me that Bill Finger was able to confine the stories in Detective Comics number 27 and 28 to six pages, while Gardner Fox needed ten pages to get his message across here. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just an observation. Another different motivation here is that Finger was content to pit the Batman against fairly recognizable gangster types in Detective Comics 27 and 28, but Fox's first instinct was obviously to take Batman into a slightly more science fiction horror type of direction rather than more street-level crime stuff. Again, this is the first time in the Batman's entire publishing history that the values and sensibilities underpinning his stories radically changed. Fox didn't just have a different view of what makes the Batman tick than Finger did. He had a completely different vision of the types of stories that Batman should be utilized in. As to the art, this is also continuing to, uh, to improve. Bob Kane's credited as the sole artist, and honestly, I've got no way to prove or disprove that, so I'm going to just roll with it. Kane is really refining his style in this issue. His art's tighter now, and the storytelling is more engage, uh, engaging and dynamic. Still not as good as, what, as what's coming, you understand, but Kane's beginning to do more than just make doodles on the page. He's refining his craft and becoming a better artist. There's just no comparison between the visual storytelling here in Detective Comics number 29 versus what we saw in number 27, which was a little more stiff, a little more cramped, and a lot more primitive. Another key element here is that Kane's evolving the Batman's visual language. In my comments about Detective Comics number 28, I mentioned that Kane was starting to experiment a bit with what was possible to do with the Batman on a visual level. Here, we see the first fruits of that. A good example of what I mean is Kane's obvious fascination with putting Batman in front of a full moon. For some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason, that was a very powerful image for him, and he kept hitting that visual cue again and again. On page four in the first panel, we see the Batman atop a building preparing his emergency escape. While he does so, the full moon hangs behind him. In the very next panel, when the angle is facing completely the other way, the Batman descends onto a balcony, and once again, the full moon is hanging behind him. So, either it took the Batman several hours to climb down one story on his rope, or else Bob Kane had a serious boner for drawing the Batman against a full moon, and we're not necessarily supposed to infer continuity from one panel to the next when it comes to full moon imagery. I don't know about the rest of you, but I tend toward the latter. Still, your mileage may vary. Now, again, how much of the credit does Kane really deserve here? I have no idea, people. For all I know, the first and last Batman story that he ever drew was the case of the Chemical Syndicate back in Detective Comics number 27. After which, he used a studio to draw everything, slapped his name on it, and took all the credit. The other extreme is that he drew this shit all or mostly by himself, 
and people just want to take his credit away from him. I don't know. So I'll stick with the official credits for right now until or unless more information comes to light. And then I'll, I guess I'll change my opinion. But I guess my, my thing here is that I'm not taking sides in this thing. I'm just trying to review these issues without getting sidetracked by a bunch of irrelevant bullshit. And that's a good lead-in for Detective Comics number 30, The Return of Dr. Death. Executive editor is Vincent Sullivan. Cover artist is it doesn't have Batman on the cover, so who gives a fuck? Writer is Gardner Fox. Penciler is Bob Kane and Sheldon Moldoff. Inker is Bob Kane. Letterer is Sheldon Moldoff. Editor is Vincent Sullivan. Bruce Wayne sits at home reading a newspaper about a wealthy man named Mr. Jones who died under mysterious circumstances. Bruce Wayne suspects this to be the work of Dr. Death, whom he believed to be dead after he got all burninated in Detective Comics number 29. Bruce Wayne visits Mrs. Jones, who explains that her husband was absolutely getting blackmailed by Dr. Death. They lost their money in the Depression, so Mrs. Jones is planning to hand over her diamond heirlooms. Bruce suits up as the Batman and prepares to face Dr. Death a second time. He stores gas vials in his belt in case he needs them later on, which is a pretty good indication that he probably will. The Batman then breaks into the Jones estate and opens their safe. Elsewhere, Dr. Death is shown to be alive and well, but horribly disfigured by severe burns. His henchman is a burly Cossack named Mikhail. Dr. Death sends Mikhail to steal the Jones diamonds, and the Batman's waiting for him. Mikhail finds the safe open, which makes it easier for the Batman to trail him home. Mrs. Jones interrupts him, though, and Batman's forced to knock Mikhail out. He then throws Mikhail out the window, so Mikhail will wake up and think he somehow escaped scot-free. The Batman then revives the fainted Mrs. Jones and trails uh, Mikhail to the Ivanhurd pawn shop. Mikhail leaves after fencing the diamonds and returns to his apartment. The Batman climbs up using his bat rope and drops down through a skylight. He breaks into Mikhail's bedroom and uses the choking gas to make sure that Mikhail stays asleep. See, told you you'd need that shit. Mikhail recovers and points a gun at the Batman, who leaps out the window, then swings back around uh, with his rope. Mikhail sticks his head out the window, and then Batman comes crashing into him, breaking his uh, neck, that is Mikhail's neck, by kicking him upside the head. The Batman then returns to Ivanhurd's pawn shop to recover the diamonds. He swings in through the window and confronts Ivanhurd, who recognizes him and tries to run off, but the Batman catches him with his lasso. It's revealed that Ivan Hurd is, in fact, Dr. Death in disguise. He wore a skin mask to disguise the fact that his face was completely destroyed in the fire. The Batman leaves Dr. Death tied up for the police. The police are surprised to find the jewels recovered and a note identifying the rightful owner. The end. So, what did I think? Last issue was the first non-Bill Finger Batman story in the character's entire publishing history. But it was also part one of Batman's first multi-part storyline, so some interesting history to that. Now, again, if your view of Batman is a virtuous champion of the oppressed, my guess is you probably don't enjoy these two Gardner Fox stories all that much. And you know what? Whatever. That's your prerogative. All right? Just saying that 
the Batman's motivations and methods in all of Part 1 and arguably all of Part 2 don't really support your viewpoint all that much. Still, the Batman's more benevolent in this story, at least superficially. There's still a strong argument that his pursuit of Dr. Death is residual bullshit left over from Detective Comics number 29. In this case, Mrs. Jones was the Batman's best shot at tracking down Dr. Death and shutting him down. Arguably, she was just a means to an end. At the same time, though, the Batman was content to let Dr. Death perish in flames back in number 29. But here, it seems pretty evident that Dr. Death survived his showdown with Batman and was then arrested by the police, so... What this tells us is that Batman doesn't always kill his adversaries. If he has to, he will. But he doesn't necessarily go out of his way to do it. Now, don't misunderstand me, he for damn sure won't lift a finger to save them if they fall on their own sword, but he won't necessarily put the sword under them to fall on either. I don't know if that makes Mikhail feel any better, but there it is. Another interesting bit of business to all this is how the Batman pretty much never faces any real peril in this story. He got ambushed back in the last issue and got shot for his troubles. This time, though, the Batman uses the element of surprise. He never reveals his presence to his enemies until he's already stacked the deck in his favor. And so as a result, victory's pretty much inevitable for him. If you view this first year of Detective Comics as a sort of loosey-goosey story about Batman improving his craft and getting better at dealing with mobsters, criminals, and supervillains, this issue pretty much marks the point where Batman starts reaching his maturity as a crime fighter. And I, I wouldn't make that argument, usually, except that last issue... We saw the Batman come face to face with what can go tremendously wrong if he doesn't plan ahead and use tactics to push his advantage. Clearly, he took all the right lessons from the last issue because I gotta tell you, the Batman's a hell of a lot more effective and dangerous in this issue than he's ever been before. Anyway, this, this story here shows that Shorter Batman stories are quickly becoming a thing of the past. National periodicals were starting to figure out which side their bread was buttered on, and they were beginning to give the Batman more and more of the spotlight. Last issue's 10-page story wasn't a fluke. This story here is 10 pages long, too. For that point in comics history, this was quite the sprawling epic storyline. As to the art... Bob Kane's starting to settle into a groove here. I don't see any, any major innovations to the art, at least in this issue, for the first time. Kane seems to be settling into a routine, and now he's just cranking out the art. What is new, though, is that this is arguably the first appearance of the Batmobile. It's, it's really all in how you look at it, because if you think of the Batmobile as just the vehicle that Batman drives around in, well, we saw that back in Detective Comics number 27. If you think of the Batmobile as a vehicle with a very obvious bat theme going for it with all kinds of customizations and special modifications built in, we're still a long way off from seeing that. 
But if you take the same view that I do, which is to say that anything not labeled as Bruce Wayne's car that has even minor modifications uh, to it, if that's the Batmobile, then yeah. This issue marks the very first appearance of the Batmobile. And here, it's just a so-called high-powered auto, which the Batman drives around in for a few panels, but it's here. And that's the point. So, yeah, I think that's just about it for this segment. I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. Sawete. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their backroll year one work, Brian Q. Miller on his backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the backroll spoiled the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. Okay, I'm back now, and continuing my look back at the first year or so of Batman stories in Detective Comics, I've got a real affection for this era of Batman. No bullshit here, so let's just get into it. Detective Comics number 31, entitled, unofficially, Batman vs. the Vampire, Part 1. Executive editor is Vincent Sullivan, cover artist is Bob Kane, Writer is Gardner Fox. Pencilers are Bob Kane and Sheldon Maldoff. Inkers are Bob Kane and Sheldon Maldoff. Letterer is Sheldon Maldoff. Editor is Vincent Sullivan. The Batman patrols Gotham City at night. He spots a beautiful woman, claiming she's been sent by the Master Monk, about to attack and kill a man. The Batman swoops down and saves the man's life. The Batman realizes at that moment that this woman is Julie Madison. His fiancée is Bruce Wayne. The Batman notices that the girl's in some kind of hypnotic trance. Once she comes to, the Batman drives Julie home without saying a word to her or answering any of her questions. When he drops her off, 
He tells her to explain that everything that's happened to Bruce Wayne the next morning. I guess Julie did exactly that because the next day Bruce takes her to see Dr. Trent, who explains that she was a victim of hypnosis. The doctor suggests an ocean voyage to somewhere like Paris, and then maybe later to Hungary. Bruce is suspicious, though. Dr. Trent seems to be in a hypnotic trance himself. In spite of this, Bruce decides to let Julie go on the ocean voyage. Later, in a secret hangar known only to himself, Bruce plans to follow Julie as the Batman. He experiments with some new items in his arsenal. First, there's his flying bat gyro, which he plans to use to follow Julie on her voyage. Second, maybe showing that he's learned a lot from his battles with Dr. Death, Batman also experiments with his newest weapon, the Batarang. From there, Batman fires up the bat gyro and heads out into the night. The bat gyro flies over the streets of Gotham, which causes a miniature panic in the streets as people freak out over the sight of a huge, bat-shaped sh uh, ship zipping through the skies. Catching up with Julie's ocean liner, Julie's kind of scared of the bat gyro herself. At that moment, Batman drops out of the bat gyro to visit Julie on the boat. As Julie explains how she ended up on the ocean voyage to Paris, they're interrupted by a hooded villain known as the Monk. The Monk tries to hypnotize Batman, who finds it harder and harder to move. Through sheer force of will, Batman forces himself into action by throwing a batarang at the Monk. The batarang misses, but the spell's been broken, which is the only thing that really matters. Batman jumps onto his rope ladder and escapes into the bat gyro. From there, the boat arrives in Paris and then Batman lands, after which he scours the city in search of Julie. Batman hops across rooftops, spies on bars teeming with lowlives, and secretly catches rides on taxicabs. He finally finds Julie's lodgings, but before he can do anything, the Batman's attacked by a giant gorilla. The gorilla chases him into a room with no floor, where the Batman falls into a giant net. The net pulls him up into a room where the monk sits on a throne. The monk mocks Batman for a little while and then pulls a lever, which lowers the Batman, still trapped inside the net, into a pit of snakes. He manages to throw his batarang at a lever and shatter some glass. Batman then catches a shard of glass and uses it to cut his way free of the net. Freeing himself none too soon, Batman climbs out of the net, scales the rope, and chases after the monk. The monk runs through a doorway and drops another cage on Batman after he follows. The giant gorilla from earlier in the story is then dropped into the cage. But the Batman refuses to get suckered into a pointless fight with the gorilla, so he dashes up the rope that lowered the gorilla into the cage and takes down the guard who lowered the gorilla into the cage. From there, he escapes through a door which leads him to the outside. Batman climbs back into the hovering bat gyro. He spots a car speeding away and pursues it for a little while, after which he leaps out of the bat gyro and down onto the top of the speeding car. The car crashes into a tree and Batman drags Julie from the wreckage. Luckily she's unharmed in all this chaos, but, swearing vengeance, the Batman sets the controls of the bat gyro to Hungary, home of the monk and his vicious werewolves. To be continued. So... What did I think? You know, it's, it's funny. Prevailing wisdom says that 
comics would steer well away from multi-part stories back in this era of comic book publishing because you really had no way of knowing that people would be able to pick up each issue of the storyline. But here we get two multi-part stories back-to-back. I'm not sure if that puts the lie to anything because maybe this is where that lesson came from. But either way, I just thought it was kind of interesting. Anyway, I love this story. I freely admit that I'm incredibly biased in this, and people, I don't pretend to have any objectivity here. I first read Batman vs. the Vampire when it was reprinted in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, which was way back when I was eight years old. It's important to emphasize here that Batman's never been just one thing to me. My first glimpse of Batman was that 1960s filmation cartoon, but in my, just in my opinion, my introduction to Batman, like a lot of kids from my generation, was Tim Burton's first Batman film. After that, I picked up The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, which reprinted stories from the 1930s going right on through to the early 1980s. After that, I absorbed the Adam West TV show. And not long after all that stuff, I read Batman Year One and The Dark Knight Returns. And not very long after all of that, Batman the Animated Series started up. So, I guess my point here is that from the get-go, I cut my teeth on a ton of different versions of Batman. When your introduction to the character consists of Bob Kane, Tim Burton, Norm Brayfogle, Frank Miller, Adam West, and Carmine Infantino, all in the same maybe five or six month period, it's really hard to get too sectarian about the way Batman ought to be. Still, this storyline really hit me when I was a kid because I thought it was such a stroke of brilliance to put Batman in vaguely paranormal types of stories like this. Because of that, like I said, I've got no objectivity when it comes to this story. I refuse to pick apart the plot holes and the other bizarre aspects of this story. This is dark, sinister, horror movie-oriented type stuff. Borderline macabre, really. The first two Batman stories in Detective Comics, which is to say Detective Comics number 27 and 28, these were mostly pulpy crime stories, but... Once Gardner Fox started filling in for Bill Finger, you can't help but notice the tendency toward gothic horror more so than street-level crime thrillers. That either works for you, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, it's not like I can say anything to change your mind, but it works for me in a big way. I wouldn't want to see it overdone, you understand. It's definitely something to be used in moderation, but at the same time, I can't argue that it's not a great way to tell a Batman story. As far as the art goes, Bob Kane, with an assist from Sheldon Maldoff, once again indulges his penchant for putting the Batman next to a full moon. It happens 17 times just in this one issue. Hell, it happens in the first three panels on the first page alone. Also, maybe it's because of Maldoff, but to me... This is Bob Kane's artistic zenith on Batman. His work had never looked this slick, 
polished or dark before. And mostly it never would again, because not long after this issue, Kane would start, draw, start drawing Batman more and more often with some kind of retarded, shit-eating grin on his face. Now, you know what? Maybe that was editorial pressure. I'm willing to consider that, but no matter what the cause was, Batman will shortly begin moving away from the grim, morose figure of darkness that he'd always been and start getting closer and closer to the smiling do-gooder. And look, guys, don't get me wrong. I don't mind that late Golden Age Dick Sprang era of Batman as Gotham's most famous citizen deputized by the police, always having a word of guidance and encouragement to the youngsters and all that shit, but it just it bugs me when, it, when that stuff encroaches on, play, uh, on places where it just doesn't belong. And, it, and I just don't think that it belongs in this era of Batman. But obviously nobody cares what I think. Now, once again... I think we can argue over Tim Burton's approach to Batman here. The bit at the beginning of the story where Batman drives Julie home and refuses to answer any of her, any of her questions sure as shit reminds me of the descent into mystery part of the 1989 Batman film where he drives Vicki Vale to the Batcave and doesn't say a word to her the entire time. And then there's the moment where Burton silhouetted the Batwing against a full moon. Again, I think Burton's loudest critics have never read the comics that he took inspiration from. And I also don't think it's an accident that Tim Burton, who's admitted to having some form of dyslexia, took more of a visual inspiration from comics rather than the nitty-gritty of the writing. Just food for thought, people. As to what happens next, Detective Comics number 32, unofficially titled Batman vs. the Vampire, Part 2. Executive editor is Vincent Sullivan. Cover artist is It Doesn't Have Batman on the cover, so who gives a shit? Writer is Gardner Fox. Penciler is, pencilers are Bob Kane and Sheldon Moldoff. Inkers are Bob Kane and Sheldon Moldoff. Letterer is Sheldon Moldoff. Editor is Vincent Sullivan. The Batman pursues the monk into Hungary. He hijacks a speeding carriage using choking gas and kidnaps the woman inside. Traveling in his bat gyro, he takes this woman back to his hotel. The woman introduces herself as Dala. Batman has her sleep in the same room as his other guest, Bruce Wayne's fiance, Julie Madison. In the middle of the night, Dala sleepwalks out of the room. Batman realizes that she's got fresh blood on her lips. Dala snaps out of her trance and smacks Batman upside the head with a statue, at which time she makes her escape. Batman realizes that Dala's a vampire, and she's bitten Julie. Batman chases Dala and makes her talk about the monk. Dala insists that she'll only tell Batman about the monk if he promises to kill him, because she hates and fears the monk, too. Batman and Dala leave to pursue the monk. Before leaving, Batman tells Julie that She's got to stay behind and resist any psychic urge to rejoin the monk. The Batman and Dala fly out over the Hungarian countryside en route to the monk's hideout. Suddenly, the bat gyros pulled back down to the ground by a net, and the monk captures both of them. 
The monk then telepathically overpowers Batman and forces him to, uh, to march to his doom. Dalla suggests that the monk summon Julie and force her to watch just to make his revenge against Batman perfect. Julie arrives on the scene and the monk threatens to turn her into a werewolf just like himself. The Batman's lowered into a pit of wolves that the, that the monk summoned from the forest. The pit's too deep for him to escape by using a silk rope. The wolves attack Batman, but he's able to subdue them with the gas pellets from his utility belt. Finally, the Batman escapes by attaching his battering to his rope and attaching that to a pillar. The castle's asleep, and Batman confirms that Julie's okay. After that, he uses a candle to melt a silver statue into two silver bullets. Batman then loads the silver bullets into the gun he carries with him at all times. After that, he finds Dalla and the monk sleeping in their coffins and shoots both of them to death. The spell on Julie's broken, and they're both able to safely return to America. The end. So, what did I think? You know, I could pick on this story for not having its myth straight about vampires, werewolves, and all that stuff. But like I said before, I'm way too close to this story to ever be objective about it. And once again, it's a pretty dark story. Batman again shows himself willing to take life when he shoots Dalla and the monk to death in their sleep. And let's face it, that's a pretty balls-out way to kill anybody. Through this entire story, Batman's again motivated by selfish issues. Would he be as determined to rescue Julie if she was anybody else's girlfriend? Maybe, but maybe not. And the story makes no bones of the fact that Batman's on a mission of personal vengeance against the monk. Yes, the monk's too dangerous to be left alive, no doubts there, but it's very telling that the Batman makes it all as personal as he does. Again, this feeds into my notions that the Batman may do fundamentally positive things, but his motives for doing them are predominantly selfish in nature. I don't think Batman's a hero in the traditional sense of the word. But anyway, as to the art, it's pretty much more of the same from Kane and Moldov. I think by this point, they both settled into a groove with the Batman's look, his world, his methods, and other things. At this point, there's really not much for him to tweak anymore. Overall, Batman vs. the Vampire is a story with a pretty mixed reputation. A lot of people want to dismiss it because of the relatively primitive art, the gothic horror elements of the story, Batman's willingness to take life, or, or whatever else. But first of all, it's a valid part of Batman's history. Second of all, though, it's a damn good story if you're not obsessed with Batman fighting against a bunch of anachronistic fucking mobsters. Give this story a chance. You'll love it. I promise. And that's a lead-in for the next batch of comics that I'm going to be talking about, but I'll come back to that in a moment. For right now, it's time for a break. Be right back after these messages. Hey kids, 
Do you like comics? <laughs> Do you like Iron Man comics? <laughs> Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? Then listen to the Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition and see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor! Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more, hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. The Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition on iTunes or at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord. Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. Okay, I'm back now, and continuing my look back at the first year or so of Batman stories and detective comics. Now, like I said in the last segment, I've got a major fixation for this era of Batman. So, like before, no bullshit, we're just going to get into it. Detective Comics number 33. The first part of which is entitled Legend. The Batman and How He Came to Be. Executive editor is Vincent Sullivan. Cover artist is Bob Kane. Writers are Bill Finger and Gardner Fox. Pencilers are Bob Kane and Sheldon Maldoff. Inker is Bob Kane. Letterer is Sheldon Moldoff. Editor is Vincent Sullivan. In a flashback to 15 years ago, Thomas Wayne's walking home from a movie with his wife and also his son, Bruce. They're approached by a mugger who demands his mother's necklace. Thomas Wayne shouts for the mugger to leave her alone and tries to push him back. The mugger says Thomas asked for it and shoots him dead. Bruce's mother is horrified and calls for the police. The mugger shoots and kills her, too, so that she'll stop screaming. Young Bruce is horrified at the scene before him. 
Several days later, he kneels next to his bed by candlelight and makes a solemn vow. He swears by the spirit of his parents to avenge their deaths by spending the rest of his life warring on all criminals. As the years pass, Bruce Wayne prepares himself for his career. He becomes a master scientist. He trains his body to physical perfection until he's able to perform amazing athletic feats. Finally, one night Bruce sits in the Wayne mansion thinking about his future. His father's estates left him wealthy, but he needs a disguise in order to carry out his war on crime. Bruce already understands that criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot, so his disguise has got to be able to strike terror into their hearts. He's got to become a black, terrible creature of the night. As if in answer, a huge bat flies through the open window, as if in answer to his question. Bruce Wayne declares that this is an omen, and he's going to become a bat, and thus is born this weird figure of the dark, this avenger of evil, the Batman. The end. So, what did I think? Well, as far as origin stories go, this one's interesting in as much as it came along several months after Batman's debut. I don't know this to be true, but I've always suspected that nobody was beating down Bob Kane's door, demanding to know how the Batman came to be. So this has got to be a story that Batman's creative team really wanted to tell. Now, a lot of people consider this to be the first retcon in all of comics, and honestly, it's pretty hard to argue with them. Again, it's interesting to think that Bill Finger and Bob Kane might have created the Batman before they created his origin. I don't know if that's the case. But then, if the origin story was created alongside Batman, why not begin Detective Comics number 27 with this origin story? Anyway, it's all spe uh, complete speculation on my part. Uh, who knows? But it's just interesting to think about. Now, as to the story at hand, it's entitled, The Batman Wars Against the Dirigible of Doom. Bruce Wayne's walking through Gotham City when a giant red dirigible appears. The dirigible shoots red beams that makes the buildings crack and explode, hurling debris on the crowds below. The dirigible announces that it's come to rule the world. It's driven by a group called the Scarlet Horde, who swear that they're going to attack again if they're met with any kind of resistance. Bruce Wayne assists in the disaster relief uh, efforts. Thousands are dead. Later, when Bruce Wayne returns to Wayne Manor, he presses a panel and part of the wall opens. This reveals his secret laboratory. He goes through his files and determines that the culprit is likely Dr. Carl Kruger, a man with a Napoleon complex. Kruger recently escaped from an insane asylum and is said to have been working on a new type of death ray. Bruce opens the chest where he stores his batsuit and prepares his silk rope. He then drives to Kruger's mansion in his car. The Batman then climbs up the side of Carl Kruger's house and sees the Scarlet Horde inside. Carl Kruger is commanding three other scientists named Bixley, Ryder, and Travis. They have an army of 2,000 men. 
The scientists leave, and Kruger talks to himself about how he's going to become the next Napoleon. The Batman enters and throws a batarang at his face. Kruger reveals that there's a sheet of invisible glass protecting them. Bruce is knocked out from, from behind by a hand with a gun reaching out of a painting. Kruger ties Batman up and sets a bomb to go off in an attempt to fake his own death. Batman has a steel blade hidden inside his boot, so he's able to cut his bonds and escape. The bomb goes off seconds after Batman uh, leaves. The Batman visits Ryder and threatens him in bed. Batman tells Ryder that he'll be back later. Ryder immediately drives to find Kruger, and Batman follows him in the Bat Gyro. This leads Batman to the secret hangar of the dirigible. Batman breaks a glass vial that covers his plane in black smoke so that it's invisible from the ground. He climbs down and, inf and infiltrates the hangar, uh, taking out the guards with knockout gas. He destroys their stockpile of death rays by shooting them with a gun, which makes all of them explode. Batman tries to destroy the dirigible with an axe, but Kruger arrives and shoots him in the back. Kruger tells a guard to watch Batman's body while he prepares a death ray. Kruger returns to the room and then uses the death ray to completely disintegrate Batman. He explains that the death ray is a fusion of ozone gas and a gamma ray. But it's later revealed that Batman knocked out his guard and switched costumes with him. Kruger believes Batman's dead, but he makes it safely home in his plane. His bulletproof vest saved him from serious harm. He works all night in his laboratory and sprays his plane with a mysterious chemical. The next day, the dirigible attacks again. This time, Batman's ready in his plane. The dirigible tries to blast him with its death ray, but the chemical he used makes his plane immune to the death ray. The dirigible sends a fighter pilot out to shoot Batman down, and Batman pilots his flight his plane straight into the dirigible, destroying both of them in a massive explosion. Batman parachutes to safety, but Carl Kruger is still flying around in the fighter plane and trying to kill him. Batman ties his rope to Kruger's plane and drops his parachute. He climbs onto the wing, and Kruger tries to shoot him with a gun but misses. Batman throws a gas pellet at Kruger, which knocks him out, and causes the plane to crash. Then, Batman leaps out before the plane can hit the water, which is just about the time that Kruger dies. Bruce Wayne later relaxes at home. The radio announces that they've recovered Kruger's corpse and captured the entire Scarlet Army. The end. So, what did I think? Well, I find it interesting that Bill Finger is once again back in the credits... And the Batman is once again portrayed as a selfless hero rather than the selfish vigilante that Gardner Fox envisioned him to be. I mean, yeah, Gardner Fox gets a co-writing credit here, and to be honest, it's hard to know whose idea this was. The whole idea of a, of a dirigible threatening Gotham City seems like the kind of sci-fi idea that you'd expect from Gardner Fox. The characterization, though, seems more in line with Bill Finger's sensibilities. So, I don't know. Maybe Fox came up with the big picture story, while Finger busied himself with the dialogue and the fine details. Either way, though, 
I thought this is the first Batman story in this whole bunch that's honestly kind of a clunker. I thought Carl Kruger was kind of a weak sauce villain. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there's a hell of a lot of potential to a villain with a Napoleon complex. It's just that not all that much was really done with that concept. As to other stuff, Kane and Maldoff's art had reached a point of near gothic perfection back in Batman vs. the Vampire, and that seems pretty toned down here. And you know what? That could very well be because this story's longer than any single issue that's been published up to now, so I'm not sure what to say here. Still, this story is not a total write-off. I'm pretty sure that Batman uses his entire arsenal of gadgets in this story. At various points, he drives around in the Batmobile, he zips around the skies in the Batplane, he swings around on his silk rope, and he even throws his battering. But there's something else going on here, too. Arguably, this is the first appearance of the Batcave. Now, true, here it's a lowly secret lab, but come on. Everything else with the Batman has humble origins, so why should the Batcave be any different? Anyway. Overall, I wasn't really all that crazy about this story. It just lacked that indefinable something that made the stories before uh, this one so awesome. But anyway. Now on to Detective Comics number 34. Entitled Peril in Paris. Executive editor is Vincent Sullivan. Cover artist is it doesn't have Batman on the cover, so who gives a damn? Writer is Gardner Fox. Penciler is, pencilers are Bob Kane and Sheldon Moldoff. Inkers are Bob Kane and Sheldon Moldoff. And editor is Vincent Sullivan. Bruce Wayne's leaving his hotel in Paris when he thinks he's spotted an old friend, Jed Farnall. He stops this man, but it's not actually Jed Farnall at all. It's a dude with absolutely no face. Bruce thinks this is slightly unusual, but whatever. Meanwhile, in a midtown hotel, a beautiful woman worries that she's doomed. She receives the mark of... I'm honestly not really sure how to pronounce this name. Duke Dauter? Duke Dauter? Uh, I'm not really sure. Master of the Apaches. This woman runs outside to find a taxi and coincidentally finds herself riding in the same cab as Bruce Wayne. They're instantly attacked by a dagger thrown through the window. Bruce helps this woman escape through the traffic and demands answers about who's trying to kill her. The woman faints when she sees the faceless dude from earlier. Bruce and the faceless dude revive this nameless woman in the hotel room, and it's, ex and it's explained that their siblings, Charles Mar and Carol Mar. Again, I'm not really sure how to pronounce those, that, that last name either. Mar? I don't know. Whatever. Charles explains that they met the Duc d'Auterre at a ball mask where the Duke fell in love with Carol. Charles interfered and the Duke had thugs kidnap him. They took him through the sewers to a secret laboratory where they burned away his face with a terrible ray. Charles tells Bruce that the Duke must be destroyed because the Duke is trying to steal their fortune. 
Bruce Wayne promises to help, then casually leaves the room, and then returns to it as the Batman. That night, Batman enters the sewers and finds the Apaches. He's interrupted by Duke Dorter, who knocks him out with some kind of crazy knockout ray and is hidden inside of his walking cane. The Duke straps Batman to a torture contraption called the Wheel of Chance. The wheel spins so fast that Batman will either be thrown against the wall, and thus crushed, or else he'll go mad from the never-ending whirling. The Duke starts the wheel, but Batman breaks free of his leather bonds just by flexing his wrist muscles. Batman tries to jump off the wheel, but the Duke opens a hatch, and Batman leaps into a weird garden. The garden's filled with flowers that have the faces of people, and Batman worries that he's going mad. The Duke sends his, his henchmen to kidnap Charles and Carol. They strap Charles to the Wheel of Chance so he'll reveal where their fortune's hidden. Meanwhile, the flowers talk to Batman and give him instructions on how to release them from his garden. Batman follows their directions back uh, to the wheel and releases Charles. Charles explains that the Duke has taken Carl to a place in Champagne. Batman and Charles leave together in the Bat Gyro. They spot the Duke's car on the road, and Batman descends by rope ladder. Batman easily defends against the ray cane, but isn't prepared when the Duke pulls out a knife. Carol kicks the Duke, making him drop his weapon. Batman and the Duke struggle while the car continues at a high speed with no driver. From there, the car goes flying off a cliff. Batman barely manages to grab his rope ladder and rescue Carol. The Duke, meanwhile, plummets to his death. In the aftermath, Carol begs Batman to tell him who he really is. Batman tells her that his identity must remain a secret and bids them both goodbye. The End So, what did I think? Well... Another Gardner Fox story. Another sci-fi romp with some horror overtones thrown in. What's interesting about this story, though, is how the Batman doesn't really propel the narrative. And for a Gardner Fox story, that's pretty unusual. Your typical Gardner Fox Batman story up to this point is usually shown the Batman driving the plot based on personal interests. But here, he's more of a reactive character. The guest stars and the villains move the story along more than the Batman does. And honestly, I think you could fairly well say that the Batman's mostly just along for the ride in this story. And that could be why I think of this as another clunker. It's not bad. It's just that I don't really give a damn about Charles and Carol. Also, I can't quite shake the idea that Charles is kind of a ripoff of the Blank, a Dick Tracy villain. The Blank debuted in 1937, which is a good two years before Batman was even created. Considering how popular Dick Tracy was, it seems unlikely to me that Bill Finger and Bob Kane didn't have at least a passing familiarity with the stripped and Dick Tracy's just odd assortment of characters and enemies. And let's cut the shit. It wouldn't be the first time that the creative powers behind Batman outright stole something from somebody else, now would it? But I guess over and above all that stuff, the art in this issue is just a little bit of a clusterfuck. 
the art in Detective Comics started off fairly primitive, but still engaging and dynamic. And in my opinion, it peaked in Batman vs. the Vampire, where it looked fucking awesome. But since then, we've been on a pretty steady decline. Now, assuming that Bob Kane actually drew all of this stuff himself to begin with, you'd think he started a studio full of artists, basically to keep the art on schedule and in good quality. I assume these issues came out on time, but man oh man, the quality of the art has really taken a major hit in the past couple of stories, so what the fuck was the point of Bob Kane opening his own studio? Fucked if I know. Anyway, I guess to, to be specific, there are a, a bunch of in, uh, instances of stiff, awkward poses. What look, at least to me, like unfinished panels. There are some missing backgrounds and some other shit. Now, look, I have no clue what might have been going on behind the scenes to account for all of this, so maybe i do best just to keep my mouth shut. But it really feels like the art is declining in, in quality, in energy, in any other metric that you can think of. It's just not up to the same standard as Batman versus the Vampire. Anyway, moving on to Detective Comics number 35, entitled The Case of the Ruby Idol. Executive editor is Vincent Sullivan. Cover artist is Bob Kane. Writer is Bob Finger. Pencilers are Bob Kane and Sheldon Moldoff. Inkers are Bob Kane and Sheldon Moldoff. Editor is Vincent Sullivan. A man named Weldon begs Commissioner Gordon for police protection. He tells him of a business rival named Sheldon Lennox, who had sold him a, a ruby statuette of the Hindu god of destruction, Kila. Several days later, Weldon received death threats from Hindu idol worshippers demanding that Weldon either return their idol to them or face death. Batman investigates the case, which leads him to a fencing operation in Chinatown, led by Sin Fang, who claims to have, to have not known that the idol had even been stolen. Sin Fang puts the Batman through several death traps, each time claiming it was an accident. Finally, Sin Fang drops the Batman through a trap door, revealing that none of this has been an accident, but this time, the Batman's dead for sure. Somehow, though, the Batman manages to escape from the trapdoor. Then he recovers the idol and learns that Sin Fang is, in fact, Sheldon Lennox in disguise. The two fight it out, and the Batman smashes Lennox in the face with the ruby idol, and Sheldon falls out of a window to his death. The idol has claimed its final victim. The end. So, what did I think? Well... This is a Bill Finger story, and it sure as shit reads like one. There are threats of murder, stolen goods changing hands, lots of fights, several escapes from death traps, and even a twist ending with the villain's true identity being revealed. And hey, Commissioner Gordon's back too. One weird aspect of this story, though, is that Bruce Wayne seems to be portrayed as a newspaper reporter. Up to now, he was a bored socialite who just really didn't seem interested in anything. Of course, 
that was a cover for his secret identity, but here it's as if Finger couldn't figure out how to tie up some aspects of the story, so he pulled it out of his ass that Bruce has been a reporter all along. Or something. Look, I don't know. Maybe I'm misinterpreting something here. Maybe I'm projecting a lot of bullshit onto this story that just doesn't belong here, but it looks like maybe someone decided the quality of Batman stories had taken a hit in the past couple of issues and thus decided to try getting things as back to normal as possible. Certainly, this story reads more like a crime thriller that Bill Finger seems to prefer, but with, with all of the good comes the bad. This is the first major occasion I can think of where the hero of the story stops being the Batman, the grim, silent Avenger who scares the shit out of criminals and starts becoming just plain old Batman, a guy who grins once in a while and makes puns in the middle of a fistfight. Now, that only happens a couple of times in this story, but I don't remember it ever happening before this point. The common perception that people have is that Robin was introduced primarily to make the Batman comics lighter and brighter. But honestly, I think that process started an issue or two before Robin even showed up. Because Batman just isn't as dark and vengeful in this story as he has been in the past. And I'm not happy about that either. I mean, look, I don't want to sound all snooty about it or anything, but I don't like the change in tone that's just around the corner. Batman having adventures with Robin and shit doesn't bother me. But there's a pretty fucking conflicting tone on the horizon where Batman's going to smile and give public uh, public service announcements one minute and blow Hugo Strange's monster men straight to hell the next minute. It just pisses me off, you know? Anyway. Speaking of uh, Hugo Strange, Detective Comics number 36, entitled... Professor Hugo Strange. Executive editor is Vincent Sullivan. Cover artist is Bob Kane. Writer is Bill Finger. Pencilers are Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson. Inkers are Bob Kane and Sheldon Moldoff. Letterers are Jerry Robinson and Fred Gardiner. Editor is Vincent Sullivan. The Batman arrives too late to stop a drive-by shooting. Before the man perishes, he mutters the word fog and strange. Batman later learns that the victim was a former G-man, and that he, w- he was referencing the, no- the notorious scientific criminal, Professor Hugo Strange. Hugo Strange kidnaps electrical engineer Henry Jenkins and forces him to, des- to design a device that will generate a perpetual fog where- whenever he requires it. With the fog in place... Strange's men can commit crimes with added stealth and evade police capture. Batman eventually tracks Hugo Strange down and battles his men. He rescues Henry Jenkins and destroys the fog generator. Hugo Strange is captured and taken to jail. The end. So, what did I think? You know... This story continues a bit more of a return to form. It's a pretty straightforward crime story 
Inasmuch as Batman goes up against a bunch of mobsters, and once again the police are a bunch of dim-witted flatfoots, Commissioner Gordon's going ballistic over the crime wave, there are plenty of fights and narrow escapes, and all that kind of stuff. Once again, though, Batman's not the Batman. He's a smiling, wise guy who makes fun of his opponents with awful, awful, fucking awful jokes in the middle of their little fistfights. So, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, Batman beats the fertilizer out of a lot of people in this story, but on the other hand, he never stops with those horrible fucking puns and jokes and shit, you know? And, of course, he smiles like a tool every once in a while. And, again, look, I don't mind a grim, morose Batman. And I also don't mind a smiling, costumed, do-gooder Batman. It's when you mix the two of them up that I call shenanigans. And that's what this story does non-fucking-stop. Still, some useful things come out of this. For one thing, we see more of Gordon, which isn't a bad thing during this era of Batman, but another thing is that we're introduced to Professor Hugo Strange. Now, he's not a major Batman villain in the grand scheme of things, but at the same time, he always fucks Batman's day up real bad anytime he comes around. So, I loves me a good Professor Strange story, and this is a good one. From an artistic standpoint, this issue shows that the downward slide in quality of art is pretty much going to be the new normal for Batman from now on. To whatever degree he truly deserves any credit in the first place, Bob Kane peaked back in Batman vs. the Vampire, and now we're settling into a little bit of a rut with uh, the quality of the art. And in terms of quality, I'd compare this issue to Batman number one, which most sources seem to agree was drawn, which truly was drawn by Bob Kane, and was about as mediocre as what we see here. There are a couple of flashes of brilliance, though. Gotham City looks amazing and shrouded in Hugo Strange's fog, and it just, it really adds a lot of atmosphere and mystery to the story, and I just, I really dug that aspect of the art. So, anyway... Once more into the breach, old friends. Detective Comics number 37, entitled The Screaming House. Executive editor is Vincent Sullivan. Cover artist is Bob Kane. Writer is Bill Finger. Pencilers are Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson. Inker is Bob Kane. Letterer is Jerry Robinson. Editor is Vincent Sullivan. Batman hears screamings uh, coming from an old abandoned house and decides to take a look at it, see what's going on. Inside the house, a man named Joey is being tortured by thugs. Batman knocks out some of the thugs and rescues Joey, who then knocks out the Batman. When Batman wakes up, he follows Joey, and he is in turn led to a man by the name of Turg, who has already killed Joey. Batman discovers that Turg and his gang are planning to destroy an incoming vessel. Batman prevents the thugs from destroying the ship and defeats what's left of the gang. Batman then finds clues that lead him to the leader of the gang, which is Count Grut, who is also known as Turg. So Batman battles Turg once more and saves the day for Gotham City. 
the end. So, what did I think? You know, honestly, it really feels like two pages of this story could have been cut out, and you really wouldn't have missed anything. Uh, the story, in case the summary didn't make it clear, the story here is just really thin. But apart from that, it really is kind of standard Bill Finger. So you've got the street-level noir aspect of the story. But instead of revolving around mobsters, this relates more to international relations. Basically, it goes like this. A group of spies are out to blow up a ship and frame the United States for it in order to spark off an international incident. Now, that was a pretty topical subject since the war drums were, brang were, were banging pretty fucking loudly for everybody back in 1940. Everybody, except the United States, that is. The man on the street didn't want to go to war, and the attitude was apparently so common and so vehement that it crept into a lot of fiction, even comics during this time. Now, should Batman go up against spies and deal with international geopolitical bullshit? Well, this is the same run of stories where Batman's fought mobsters, vampires, and mad scientists, so spies don't really seem too out of the question, if you ask me. Again, and to kind of move on to a different subject here, the art... The art's competent, but it's just not the masterpiece that Batman vs. the Vampire was. As a matter of fact, rereading all of these comics for this episode's taught me a lot of things. I came into this thing loving this era of Batman. In my mind, I remembered that Batman comics from, from this run, Detective Comics number 27 to 37, were grim, morose, serious affairs, but then Robin came along and shit in everybody's cornflakes, but that's not really what happened. Several of these stories are just average at best, and certainly by this point in the run, Batman was smiling and wisecracking even though Robin hadn't even been introduced yet. It really did a lot to challenge my views regarding how the Golden Age Batman really started. It's also a chance to study the evolution of art that Batman underwent. His basic look was more or less settled upon back in the case of the Chemical Syndicate from Detective Comics number 27. Now, yes, there were little tweaks and upgrades here and there, but his basic look didn't really change all that much until, when you think about it, relatively recently. Most interestingly of all, though, I've gotten a much clearer appreciation for the unsung comic book influences that Tim Burton brought to his first Batman film. There are just way too many similarities between these early Golden Age stories and the 1989 Batman film for me to think that it was all a coincidence. Now, I'll probably talk about the 1989 Batman film someday. Not today, because I'm, I'm just way too beat up and tired just from this episode, but sooner or later, I will do an episode about the 1989 Batman film. Now, right about now, I'd usually pause and take a break, and then come back to knock out a, an email or two, but I think I've blathered on enough as it is. 
So, people, I'm not ignoring your email. Keep the feedback coming. Keep sending me emails. Keep writing those iTunes reviews. Keep it all coming. Everything is eventually going to be read on mic. Sooner or later. As for next week, rather than talk about the introduction of Robin and Detective Comics number 38, I'll be talking about the introduction of Robin and Dark Victory by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. There are a lot of reasons for that, but I think the only reason that really matters is that I think Dark Victory is a better vehicle for Robin's inter- uh, introduction than Detective Comics number 38. Plus, honestly, I think I'm just about tapped out on the Golden Age Batman for right now. So, Otherwise, I think that's pretty much it. So, bye everybody. I'll see you next week to talk about Dark Victory. Okay, doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now, Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Dot com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. Hola, suckeros! Moria Clawhammer here. Thanks to a tax loophole and a life insurance policy, I have an authentic Mexican taco stand. The explosive taqueria! Well... If you want a pound of burrito, or just get your tongue on a taco, well, get off your ass, take a waco. Come throw some meat down your throat. If you want some food, here's a thingo. You don't want to eat like a gringo. Have some Mexican grub with some zingo. Taco sauce that explodes in your mouth. At the Explosive Taqueria in South Demonzaville, we have every kind of goddamn Mexican food you crave. We got chimichangas, ensalada, churros, chupacarnes, deep-fried jalapeno pooper, churritos, the 
famous Taco Shake. Taco Shake discontinued. Triple refried baked beans, choritos, chimichibas, chimichochas, the Commodore's nachos, and the ever-popular Endless Burrito Bowl. All prepared by our authentic Mexican cook, Manuel. My name is David. I'm from Bolivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the ladies, we have the Tila Tequila, a tiny taco, but you'll be amazed how much beef and cheese we can stuff in there. For the daredevil, we have the El Pollo Croco, a full chicken stuffed with four soft-shell tacos, two beef burritos, and two sides of your choice, deep-fried and slathered in taco sass. The taco sauce with sass. So lock down your sphincter and come on down. The Explosive Taqueria, 312 Elm Street, south of Monzaville. Tell them Maury Clawhammer sent you. Arriva Dirty. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am. Or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. 
with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>